0: Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19 conversations with Mike Milken. It's really the first time that you've had challenges and down cycles in the financial side, on the racial side, health-wise with COVID. We're at an absolute tipping point of what the consumer experience is gonna be on the retail side. Any company that does not have a digital presence has got a problem.
1: That's Kenneth Lombard, He's the Executive Vice
0: President and Chief Operating Officer of Seritage Growth Properties, a real estate investment trust with close to 30 million square feet of space across 45 states. At a time when many brick-and-mortar retail spaces are languishing, he sees opportunities. He spoke with Milken Institute and Faster Cures Chairman Mike Milken on Friday, June 26th.
1: Ken, thank you for joining me today.
0: Thanks, Michael. Thanks for the invitation.
1: How's your family doing?
0: My family's good. We've got grandkids and kids in Seattle and in Houston, and uh, everyone seems to be doing fine. Uh, our Seattle group came down and spent some time with us uh, over two months so uh, to kind of get out of that environment for a while. So that was fun, but everyone's safe and healthy.
1: The first real cases were in the Seattle area and today maybe the major increase in cases in the United States is in Houston. How are your children reacting to what's going on in those cities today?
0: They're taking a calm approach, not overreacting, just doing the things that they know they need to do, stay safe, wear masks, shelter in place. They've got the appropriate amount of discipline around it and In both cases, you know, they have children they have to be concerned about. So recognizing that this is a dangerous situation we're in.
1: Growing up in Seattle, does it bring back any memories to what's occurred in the month of June in Seattle?
0: Surprisingly, when I talk to people, the perception of Seattle is one that it's an extremely liberal city. Growing up, I didn't really feel that way. I don't want to go as far as to say it was segregated, Fortunately, all of the schools I went to were all predominantly white schools. You had the Central District where the African-Americans and minorities lived, which has changed now as you've had some regentrification of those neighborhoods. And so I grew up knowing that there was certain things we could do, certain places we could go. At that particular time, Ballard was considered kind of, you did not go to Ballard by yourself. I remember having an uncle that went to West Seattle and ended up having an issue over there so it was not a good situation when i was growing up there so we just stayed in the central district stayed in the neighborhoods that we we were in and frankly just grew up that way but my days in terms of going to school and everything else was very much in a predominantly white type of environment so it was one of those things that you grow up understanding how to deal with all people but i always maintained my own identity i mean my family is coming out of louisiana and they were very proud to be african-american and make sure that i understood that
1: seattle had an unusual entrepreneurial community starbucks a company you know very well thousands of millionaires were created and two of the three most valuable companies in the world, and it's kind of amazing when we think about it, both worth more than $1.3 trillion, Amazon and Microsoft gave birth in Seattle at that time and built workforces that were pretty diverse in both cases. Did you feel there was an entrepreneurial community there in Seattle, or did that really come about after you left?
0: I think there was an entrepreneurial spirit in community there. There was a huge divide. So you had the larger companies, Boeing. I mean, we had a small business within my family. It was a dry cleaning business. and Everyone, whether my uncles and cousins, everyone was involved in a small business of some type. But it was really a parachute from the folks that had built the larger businesses. And even like what you're suggesting, but taking a few steps down, people that were successful in the real estate business. Those were all all white entrepreneurs. And really, you found a parachute jump between that level of entrepreneur and, let's say, the community and the minority entrepreneurs. And while I grew up around business all my life and was part of it, and the family worked there, and we all had jobs that I didn't appreciate at the time, I get what it taught me in terms of the work ethic, but not sure those would be the businesses I'd choose today or the chores that I would choose today.
1: I had a chance to paint. When my father had an investment in a small apartment building and do the cleanup, it was a good learning experience for me to tell me that I wasn't good at painting. I wasn't good at putting up wallpaper. Those were not my skill sets during this very difficult COVID-19 period. And we had maybe 15 million plus small businesses A million of those were headed by African-Americans, and 41% of those have closed. So they were restaurants, they might have been small dry cleaners, they might have been service organizations. But the group that's actually been hit the hardest are African-Americans. And the difficulty in running a small business in normal times and the challenges of access to capital, et cetera. As you think back to the days growing up, do you remember challenges to the family businesses as things ebbed and flowed during that period of time?
0: We were in a pretty good position. I really credit my grandfather for that because he figured out how he could position himself from a location perspective. And as I mentioned, there were edges that were African-American, but they were all right next to each other in a city that is pretty lineal in terms of how it's set up. And so our customer base was a very integrated customer base. We had folks coming from madison park area which was really predominantly white and one of the wealthier areas in seattle and we also have people come from the central district so there's kind of a great commingling and was always hard work we didn't necessarily get hit as hard when let's say certain people started cutting back on how often they got their clothes clean um, because we had customers coming from all walks of life from a from an income perspective but you knew it was there we never had any debt because you couldn't get debt. It was always just managing the cash. And there was enough to essentially pay us a nice little stipend as kids. And the grown that were the relatives, like the uncles and aunts that were working there, were able to basically make a living. But no one really got wealthy.
1: out. Of it. In the 1980s, you decided to come to Southern California. Why Southern California, Ken?
0: Ironically, I wasn't a big fan of Southern California as I was growing up. I didn't particularly like LA. I thought well, it was, was that a
1: throwback, day. Ken, to your days of playing UCLA in basketball?
0: When they set the record for for the worst loss that Washington has ever experienced at at the hands of Bill and team, yeah, it leaves a bit of a scar there. But it's just different. I mean, Seattle was comfortable to me. I had great relationships there. Friends were there. I'm not a guy that moves around a lot. So an opportunity came up, and I felt like it was the appropriate time for me and decided to take a risk.
1: I'm a little disappointed you decided not to come to see me as the capital back then. But let's talk about your experience at Starbucks and maybe your early experience in interacting with Magic Johnson.
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't reference when I moved to L.A. and... That was 85, and I want to say it's 1988, where I met you. And the way I met you, obviously, it was around the conferences that you were having at the time. That, for me, was a significant opportunity in that you invited probably a dozen entrepreneurs, and you had an opportunity to sit and pitch our projects or our deals to you. And you would always give us feedback. You didn't necessarily always say yes. That was the first time that I felt like, okay... There's an opportunity. There is a pathway to be able to gain access. You don't have to limit your ideas and the size of your ideas You were a hero in that providing the funding for Reggie Lewis. He had done something that really no one else had done. So we knew it could happen. And what I appreciated was at that point, you became the go-to guy. It's like, okay, we got to get to Mike. You got to pitch your deal to him. And you were open to it. And I know your schedule was crazy and as busy as ever, but you still took the time to try to talk to us. And you didn't get a straight no, you got okay, here's what you need to think about. Here's some additional alternatives. So I've always appreciated that from you for me to open up my eyes and really help me to try to build my approach to what projects I felt I could get involved.
1: I got more out of those meetings, I think, even than the people in that for me, my feeling is we had to provide opportunity and hope to everyone based on ability. I always look for the individual who cared about people, had a heart, but was a leader. And that's what really struck me about you, Ken. You felt passion for what you're doing. As one of the leaders in real estate and today looking over the Sears portfolio and developing it all over the United States, this is an industry that has really been hit. By this COVID. You've seen many ups and downs in real estate over the years. Talk to us a little bit about how you see it today and how you see the future changing.
0: Obviously, we are in a down cycle at this particular time, but we've had other down cycles. It's really the first time that you've had challenges and down cycles on the financial side, on the racial side, health-wise with COVID. Real estate is directly impacted in that. Saritage is in a pretty unique position. It's only five years old. have acquired a lot of real estate for redevelopment. And as you look at what we are attempting to do, there's a lot more of it, not necessarily just coming to Saritage within our portfolio, but as you look at all the big box retailers, J.C. Bennings, Macy's you name it, they all have excess real estate and have to try to figure out how they're going to become efficient. If they're going to exist in a brick and mortar way, they have to balance that between what Jeff has built on the the digital side. And so we're at an absolute tipping point from what we are going to do and what the consumer experience is gonna be on the retail side. And if you had to look today, any company that does not have a digital presence has got a problem. And, and that whole being able to go online and order whatever you want, that's become the way most folks for to shop. For us, taking the excess real estate and being nimble in terms of how you're looking at it, we're not taking that Sears box and the real estate. And, and by the way, Sears was uniquely positioned in that at the time, they were the preferred anchor. And so they always got the best location to locate their store and they owned all the real estate. So the average sites are minimum of 13 to 15 acres. So being able to come in and redevelop that, those parcels, doesn't necessarily mean the building has to stay. In some cases, like in Santa Monica, it stays because it's been designated a landmark, but you got a lot of options from creative office to multifamily to retail. So... As I look at where the real estate is going today, at least in that segment of the marketplace, being able to come in with some optionality, being able to really look at what it truly takes to convert these department stores that are going out of business and take that real estate and create value is where the business is today. I'd be remiss if I didn't say during this period, I'm encouraged that I've never seen as many CEOs and the senior leadership within these companies recognizing that that from a diversity perspective, it's way too underrepresented in terms of minority. And so across the board, you're hearing leadership making serious commitments, which is, this has gone on like this ever since I've been in the real estate business. It's
1: an interesting point I think you've made here. This is my I believe, 118th consecutive day in our efforts to stop the side effects and stop medically the coronavirus at our various foundations in the Institute. And in speaking to CEOs, I want to echo what you've said. The most progressive of those leaders of companies at responses to what's occurred this year is they thought they were inclusive. They thought that they were doing everything. They thought that they had leveled the playing field and now they realize they hadn't. Right. And they are gonna take action and I, It's an interesting environment, Ken, that we're living in today. You're in a business that is dealing with large companies who might be people that rent space, take space, professionals, having to deal with city officials to get approvals from these things and doing anything in Santa Monica, California is always a challenge. It's not exactly Austin, Texas in quick approvals as to what you want to do in Santa Monica. Have you seen a change either before this year or since in people's reaction, are you viewed as one of the world's leading real estate developers and knowledgeable people in real estate? Or are you viewed as an African-American first as you interact with these people?
0: It's a great question. look, I think that I've been at this for over 30 years. And so, and with some of the accomplishments, including the projects that I've been involved in, you do get to establish a bit of credibility throughout the industry. And I don't think that when I walk in to a room that people don't first and foremost see me as an African-American and that's okay. And because I take on the responsibility of proving to them that I'm more than capable, that understand the business. If they don't believe me, then here's a list of people that you can call that would vouch for my credibility. And I took pride in really making sure that I understood the business, whether it's putting a deal together, developing negotiating skills to the underwriting side of it, understanding what works and what doesn't. There are times when you feel the bias. If I see that it's something that's going to get in the way, I'm not necessarily going to take the time to try to change the attitude. I'll just fold my tent up and move on to another opportunity if that's what it takes. Because I believe that, and this is kind of part of the corporate conversation that takes place, and I had this discussion when I was at Starbucks, and you know, there's people that are going to always have a certain attitude, and they're always going to bring a certain bias to the equation. And I'm not sure it's our job to change that bias. It's our job to make sure that if they're within our companies, our respective companies, that there's accountability within the four walls of that company. And there's policies and procedures that are part of the culture where they know it's not acceptable to behave in an inappropriate way or to disrespect people or to not provide an opportunity. But... To your point earlier, I believe that the latest buzzword is this unconscious bias. I think there's been an unconscious level of excluding people from opportunities and excluding the fact that this is not a level playing field for most folks within an organization. I like to think that at Starbucks, as an example, while the early definition of minority was women and gay, And that's fine. There wasn't an African-American or minority inclusion in that definition. So when you looked at the population base, that's what made it up. When I went there and the relationship that I established with Howard, it was literally like started with questions of why couldn't he attract more African-Americans? And if he did, why didn't they stay? To starting with asking him a tough question, which that's the way I posed it to him. Why don't you have any minorities on your board? And, and it wasn't one that he said, well, here's the reasons why. There was more of a response that said, well, you know what? I hadn't really thought. I carry that forward in knowing that there are going to be some conversations that you have with the CEOs and they're completely receptive. The bias is not there. They just said it's not top of mind. The question is, once it becomes top of mind, which is what's taking place right now, are they going to embrace it? And are they truly going to be the leader that is going to set the direction and set the policy, because if it doesn't come from the top of the organization, it's not going to be successful. It's not going to be sustainable. As things die down in the current environment that we're in right now, you won't see the types of changes. The results won't be at the level that we all hope for.
1: Ken, what advice would you have for young people? They found their internships canceled. Maybe they told them, to, you still have that job, but we're going to start a year later. What would you be doing if you were back in your teens or 20s here to try to maybe upskill or how would you go about it today? What advice would you give them?
0: Fortunately for me, I had a family that when I grew up, was basically instilled a sense of fearlessness in me and that there are going to be obstacles. You have to keep working hard. And frankly, this one, and I had a chance to tell him this when I met him at one of your conferences, T-Bone Pickett said something that I, and they had asked him a question about difficult times and how does he look at it? And I remember him saying that he just puts his head down and keeps pressing until the glass breaks. I don't know if you remember that comment from him, but that is with me from that day forward. And to to the young people today, that sense of fearlessness, I mean, I saw it in my parents, I saw it in my cousin who kind of led a lot of the civil rights efforts in Louisiana with the restaurant sit-ins and as part of of a starting core in New Orleans. And also, subsequently, the Lombard versus the state of Louisiana landmark case that was one of five cases that kind of broke segregation down, uh, was part of desegregating the whole state of Louisiana. Those were the examples I grew up with. And so really being in the position where you look at this, there are always going to be obstacles. This is one you got, just got to keep press and be smart about it. Integrity has got to be a big part of how you look at how you develop yourself. And so that sense of honesty, the hard work, I mean, we'll, we'll all get through this.
1: Well, Ken, I've appreciated our friendship over the decades, and I look forward to seeing what we can do together in the future. And I really see you as a role model for the world and your practical approach, but pushing forward. And that fire and desire to stand up for what you believe in has been in your family for multiple generations. And I look forward to seeing your grandchildren carry that on.
0: Michael, you know I appreciate you and our relationship, and I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with
1: Find more episodes on
0: iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.